All right, y'all, it's time once again to open up to the book of Micah. So if you will, open up with me to the book of Micah, the Old Testament prophet. Micah chapter 5 today, and we'll start in verse 7 here in just a moment. Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 7. As we're getting there, by way of introduction, have you ever had a doctor or a nurse say these words to you? This is going to hurt. I have, and it hurt like crazy. It was horrible. And you might even laugh at me when when I tell you the story, but when I was in college, uh, not the smartest man in the world, plenty of wisdom that I had to learn the hard way, and one of these you'll see here in just a moment. I was over at a friend's house. I was slicing up a, a roll of salami with one of those little dull knives, mistake number one. I didn't know that at the time. Um, getting into it, and it slipped, and it, the knife hit my finger, sorry. The knife hit my finger, and I, I lopped off a piece of the pad of my first finger right here. Um, and after, after holding a towel on it for as long as I could, uh, and seeing that it still wasn't stopping bleeding, Jennifer got in touch with me and said, you idiot, we're going to the emergency room. And so we went to the emergency room at UK Hospital and eventually got to see someone. And the first thing they did was they they gave me two shots, one right here and the other one right here in in my hand, which those hurt quite a bit, actually, shots in your hand. Um, But that was to numb it up for what they had to do, right, to stop the bleeding. Uh, And then they waited a little while because you've got to give that numbing agent time to work its way up there. And then the, the doctor comes back and the doctor's around on my finger a little bit and I say ouch I can still feel that and the doctor said yeah um, I'm sorry we we had to give you those shots to try but you've apparently cut off some nerve endings in your finger so the numbing agents won't it won't get up there it won't work so you're going to feel this and what he did was he, he got out this long stick with a silver tip Apparently, these are called silver nitrate sticks. And he says, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going I'm to have to chemically burn your finger shut so it'll quit, breathing, or quit bleeding. I'm going to cauterize your finger right now, and you're going to feel it. This is going to hurt. And I started squealing. I mean, squealing. And it's my little finger. I mean, you think that's ridiculous. It's my little finger, but it's about the worst pain I've ever felt in my whole life. And I felt every bit of it. And I kid you not, as I was doing it, this guy from the hall, this is, remember this is UK trauma center here, this guy from the hallway with a gaping wound in his shoulder that looks like he was blown off by a shotgun, just comes right around and is like, is that guy okay? Yeah. <laughs> and it's my little finger, you know, I feel horrible. But that doctor looked at me and, and he said, this is going to hurt. And I knew right there, like, if a doctor says that to you, you know, when they stick you with a needle, they say, little pinch, but this is going to hurt, I knew it, it was going to hurt. It's always fascinating to me when we watch like a movie that's set back in time before we had any kind of anesthesia and someone's about to have something happen to them that's really painful. You know, their their leg's going to have to get amputated or whatever. And to to help them with the pain, someone gives them a big thick stick and says, (laughs) bite down on this, right? Because this is going to hurt. The pain's going to be extreme. Well, I want you to see in our text... God is essentially telling the Israelites this, that this is going to hurt, but it's something that you have to go through for your own good. Let's read our text, starting in verse 7, Micah chapter 5. We're going to read down to verse 15. 
It says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. I want you to see this morning how God is essentially saying to the Israelites of Micah's day, I am going to deliver you, but first I need to remove your idols from you. Not just from your midst. I need to remove them from your heart. And this is going to hurt. But it's for your good. Did you notice how when we, when we read our text, verses 7 through 9 sound so wonderful. They sound like good news. Right? Especially look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Sounds wonderful. But then there's a, a turn of mood in verses 10 and following, where the Lord, still speaking to the Israelites, starts saying, I'm going to take this away from you. I'm going to take this away from you. I'm going to cut off this from you. It sounds like it goes from words of hope and deliverance to words of punishment in verses 10 and following. So what's going on? Well, God is saying to them, I'm going to deliver you. But first, I need to remove your idols from you. First, I need to do a little idol removal surgery in your lives and in your midst. He's going to take their idols and take them away. He's going to do this idol removal surgery, so to speak. And it's going to hurt, but it's good for the people. Notice verses 10 and 11. In 10 and 11, he gives us a picture of some of the idols that the people of that day had, right? In verse 10, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots and cut off the cities from your land and take down all your strongholds. Now, initially, when it says horses, you might be like, what's the big deal? But when you see that in context of chariots, strongholds, it's military might. It's military strength. You see, the Israelites had idols of security. They had made an idol of security. They were not content with trusting the Lord to protect them. And so they thought they needed military might that they could see, that they could touch. They had idols of security. On our Wednesday night classes here at church, we're we're teaching on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is also a prophet in the Old Testament, and he's a contemporary with Malachi, prophesying at the same time. Well, we see in the book of Isaiah that the Israelites were running off to Egypt, begging them for help because the Assyrian Empire was threatening to attack, right? The Assyrian Empire of that day threatening to attack the Israelites, to attack Judah, and they run off to Egypt for help. 
They say, Egypt, please, please come help us with all of your military strength and your military might. In this ironic twist, they go from earlier in the Bible, God delivering them at their weakest point as slaves with nothing to show for themselves, delivering them out of the hand of Pharaoh and Egypt and all of their supposed might with the ten plagues and the Red Sea. They've gone from that to now going back to Egypt and asking Egypt to come and help them, opening themselves up to this pagan nation because they're so afraid of what's coming against them and they don't trust the Lord to protect them. They need military might that they can see. They have idols of security. We all struggle with this from time to time, do we not? Even today, idols of security, making an idol out of security. The promises of the Lord are not enough. I need to see that bank account at a specific number or I won't be okay. I need to have a certain income level to live a certain lifestyle or I won't be okay. I need the United States to be a certain level of power in the world. Or I need a specific political party to be in control. And if I don't have these things, I won't be okay. Sometimes... God will help us to depend on Him by removing those things in our lives where we have mistakenly put our hopes or mistakenly placed our identity in. Sometimes God will help us to trust in Him and Him alone by taking those things away. And let me tell you, when God takes those things away, it hurts like crazy. It hurts bad. Why? Because we've put our hopes in that thing. We've put our identity into that thing. We shouldn't have, but we have. And so when God graciously takes that thing away from us, it hurts. It will hurt. It's for your good. It's necessary, but it will hurt. But in the end, we learn that we did not need those things like we thought we did. God is helping us to depend on him and him alone by giving us this gracious wound of taking away our idols, taking away the things that we have put our hopes and our identities in. We see another type of idol in verse 12. Look at verse 12. God says, I'll cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And so not only were the Israelites making an idol out of security, they were making an idol out of knowledge, an idol of knowledge. They were not content with the limits of the knowledge that God had revealed. You see, God has revealed to us and had revealed to them a certain level of knowledge. He does reveal to us many things, but there are also many things He simply does not reveal to us. And the Israelites were not content with the limits of the knowledge that God had revealed. They needed more. They needed more than what God had given them. And yet again, this is a temptation in our day just as it was in theirs. This is human nature. And so we all have to beware. It's human nature to think, I need to hear from God. I need a vision from God. The Bible is not enough. It's a temptation in our day, just like it was in their day. The Bible is not enough. I know God's spoken to me through the Bible, but that's not enough. I need to hear God's voice. I need to see a vision from God. If only God would speak to me or appear to me, then I would know He was real. Then my faith be strong. This is the problem, I think, with all of those heavenism books. 
And what, I'm, what I mean by that is someone who has a near-death experience or they, they die and they're revived, they're brought back, and then they say, I, I went to heaven. And, and now I've come back to tell everyone about it in a book that's going to sell for $12. I'm going to tell everyone about my story of going to heaven, right? The problem is, all of those stories, all of those books imply that you don't know heaven is for real until someone goes there and comes back to tell you about it. We, we need more than just God telling us it's real in His Word, right? We need someone else's testimony. Not to mention the fact that these accounts from people are completely subjective, cannot be verified, and are untrustworthy, some of which have come out and said that they were lying when they initially told that story, just for the attention, just to, to sell books and to get, make people happy around them, and that a number of times these accounts have contradicted, directly contradicted, Scripture. But this is one of the ways that Satan tempts us to open ourselves up to the spiritual forces of darkness in this world when we're not content with the knowledge that God has revealed. Right? Brothers and sisters, there are spiritual forces in this world. Do not make the mistake of thinking that this material world is all that there is. If we could pull back the veil, so to speak, this morning from the physical world to the spiritual world and see the angels and demons and all that they are doing to try to work for God's kingdom or to work against God's kingdom, we would be amazed at what we would see. There are spiritual forces in this world, some for good and some for evil, some for light and some for darkness. And one of the ways that Satan tempts us to open ourselves up to those spiritual forces of darkness is to make us not content with the limits of the knowledge that God has given us. You see, God has revealed himself and many things to us here in his word. Anytime you want to hear from God, you can go straight to the word and hear from God. Anytime you want to learn about the the spiritual truths of the universe, you have so many of them right here, but there are limits to that knowledge. Right? There are things that God has not revealed to us. And when we get hungry for more, we might go try to find it at a dangerous place. This is why the Bible over and over and over again warns us from participating in things like fortune telling, going to mediums, right? trying to communicate with the dead. Because people like that, they're either doing one of two things. Either they are straight up lying to you, deceiving people for money, or, and this one's a lot scarier, or they tapped into a spiritual force of this world, a spiritual force of darkness that that we don't need to have anything to do with, that we want to get as far away from as possible. The Israelites had a hunger and a thirst for more knowledge, and so they went to sorcerers, mediums, fortune tellers, psychics, but that desire for more knowledge than God had given them, it was what Satan used to tempt them to open themselves up to the forces of darkness in this world. Excuse me. Satan will use these things as a gateway to the demonic and the satanic. This is a temptation as old as time when you really think about it. Think about the Garden of Eden. What was the tree named that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat from? The tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord said it. In the day that they eat of it, their mind will be open, in a sense, in a a way that was never supposed to be opened, 
And they will, they will know good from evil. Satan goes in and tempts them. He tempts Eve and says, God's holding out on you. God's not giving you everything. God's hiding things from you. You could go have this knowledge. All you got to do is eat from that tree. You could be like God. And what he doesn't tell them is we were never meant to, to carry that weight. We were never meant to bear that burden. We were never meant to decide for ourselves what was good and what was evil. We were always meant to live under the shadow of the wings of the Lord and his wisdom. And yet once that happened, right, their, their eyes were opened in a sense. We've, we've been cursed ever since. We've had sorrow and suffering ever since. All because of that quest for more knowledge than the Lord has given us. We're not content with what the Lord has given. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me, if you will. A final set of idols that the Israelites struggled with, where God says, I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And in 14, he mentions Asherah images. These are all Images, idols, actual statues, and things that they were bowing down to and worshiping. They had religious idols because they were not content with the way that God had revealed himself. They were not content with the way God had revealed himself. They needed gods they could touch and see. God's not like that, right? God is spirit. He does not permit himself to be seen or visualized. He is invisible. Twice in our New Testaments, John writes, no one has ever seen God. Paul writes to Timothy that no one can see God. He is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. And so God is is not a God you can touch and see and put up on your mantle, but that's what they wanted, right? They They wanted to shrink God down. They wanted gods that they could touch, gods that they could see. And a God who was unseen frustrated them. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, it happens to us just like it happens to them. When that happens, we tend to latch on to human gods, human saviors, gods, lowercase g, that we can see and touch and hear audibly. Perhaps the most common way we do this today is with politicians. Gods that we can see and touch and talk to, put our hopes in, and think that they're going to deliver us from everything that's wrong in my world. But it's not just politicians. It could be self-help gurus, or a radio host, or a TV personality, or a celebrity. You can even do this with preachers or Christian authors. You attach yourself so much to one of them That essentially, your life becomes a disciple of that person, right? I'm a disciple of them. They teach me how to think. They teach me how to act. And if I don't have them, I'm not going to be okay. If you remember in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, they were doing this with religious teachers. Some were saying, we follow Paul. And others were saying, we follow Apollos. And others were saying, we follow Peter. And they were dividing over whose camp they were under, right? Because when we get frustrated by serving a God that we can't see. When we get frustrated by serving a God that we can't hear audibly, we tend to latch on to human gods, gods that we can see. And we tend to get to a point to where we're, we're, we, we become so identified with that person that we, we call ourselves disciples of them. And we, we take on all of their opinions. We take on all of their personality quirks. 
And they teach us how to think and act. And we think as long as we have them, we'll be okay. But remember, God is not like that. God intentionally makes himself unseen. In the second of the Ten Commandments, God says, I forbid you to make a, what the King James Version memorably called, a graven image. An image that you have engraved yourselves, right? An image that you've produced out of your own imagination and use that to worship me. God forbids that. We cannot make the invisible God visible. It's a sin. It's blasphemy. Why? Because God is spirit. Anytime you, you bring God down to something that you can see and touch and, and pick up, you're distorting the reality of who he is. You, you're going to be missing all kinds of things about his glory and his majesty. Right? That's why the second commandment forbids us from worshiping God in a way that is visual. Jesus said to Thomas, when Thomas was doubting the resurrection and finally saw Jesus, Jesus said to him in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? And yet have believed. You see, Jesus was God come in the flesh. But for those of us who live today, we haven't seen him. He came. There were, there were those who saw him, but we have not. We've never seen Jesus. We've never seen God. We've never heard their audible voices. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God is asking us to trust him in this. That he hides himself, it says in Isaiah. He hides himself. He makes himself unseen. In all of this, the Israelites were not content with the simplicity of worshiping God the way that he prescribed The simplicity of it. We must find contentment in the simplicity of worshiping God the way he has prescribed. The Israelites needed more. They needed more excitement, more visuals, more material stuff right in front of them. They wanted shortcuts and secrets to success. And they wanted to be able to manipulate God. They wanted a God that they could control, so to speak. These are all temptations of our human nature. And so they are not temptations that are specific to that day and age. They are common to all humans at all times. The New Testament calls this the flesh, our sinful nature. And yet God asks us to trust in him. To trust that his ways will satisfy our hearts if we embrace them. His ways will satisfy our hearts if we embrace them. Following God is very simple. It's very simple. Oftentimes, we think it's too simple. Oftentimes, we look at the way that God has asked us to come to him, and we think, shouldn't there be more? Shouldn't this be more exciting and more, more, more glorious, more explosive? It's simple, like reading the Bible to hear from him. You want to hear from God? You read your Bible. That's, that's the way that he has ordained that we hear from him. And sometimes we think, I need more. And God is asking us to trust that his simple ways will satisfy our hearts if we embrace them. Simple ways like worshiping him as he has directed us. When we come together on Sundays to worship, it's very simple. Sometimes we might think it's too simple. We, we hear the word, we pray, we sing together, we take communion, and we do it every time. It's, it's very simple. Think about following him, even though we have never seen him. And we've never heard his audible voice. Being content with the fact 
that he simply has not revealed some things to us. It's deceivingly simple, but that's the way God acts, is it not? We're coming up upon the Christmas season. The Christmas story is all about the ways that God has acted in a deceivingly simple way. When Jesus came to this earth, it was not with the glory and the pomp and circumstance that everyone thought it should have been. He came unheralded. The only ones who knew right away were the shepherds that were right there. He was born in a barn, literally. No, no fanfare, no, no announcement other than to those few shepherds right there. And yet this is the Savior of the world. It's the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, becoming a man. And that's the way he did it. It's deceivingly simple. We don't need any more than what the Lord has given us. We just need to cultivate a taste for it. We need to cultivate a taste for it. And that takes time and trust. Cultivating a taste for what the Lord has given us takes time and trust. Right? You can't cultivate a taste right away. It takes time, but it also takes trust as you're doing it, as you're cultivating that taste. You're trusting that God will do it in you, that God will cultivate that taste in you. If you're trying to start a habit of spending a little time each day alone with God in prayer and Bible reading, and you've never done that before, let me just tell you, at first, at times, it's going to be like trying to shove down your vegetables. It's going to be like that at first. It's just the way it is, right? But if you continue in faithful trust consistently, pretty soon your taste buds start to change. J.I. Packer once wrote a book on prayer titled Finding Our Way Through Duty to Delight. I think that's a wonderfully, uh, wonderfully instructive title. Finding our way through duty to delight, right? It begins as a duty. It begins as things that I, I, I make myself sit down and do. And then over time, consistently, the Lord starts to change my taste buds to the point to where I'm longing for it. I'm, I'm aching for it. I'm looking forward to it. When can I go and meet with God, as David said in the Psalms? And so we must find contentment in the simplicity in which God has revealed himself, and the simplicity in the way that he has prescribed us to worship him. The question that I leave you with this morning is this. Will you submit to God's gracious wounds? Will you submit to God's gracious wounds? This whole section right here is actually good news. The whole section that we read today in Micah, it's God telling the people he has come to purify them. Ultimately, he has come to save them. But first, he must take away the things that they have put their hopes in. He must take away their idols. And to do that, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. He must take away the things that we put our hopes in. The things that we have found our identity in so that we will learn to hope in him alone. Listen to Proverbs chapter 17 verse 3. It says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. What's that mean? Well, when it comes to silver and gold, when we're melting them, reshaping them, purifying them, we use things like crucibles, like furnaces, right? But when it comes to hearts... What's the Lord? The Lord is melting down, reshaping, and purifying hearts. It's the Lord who does that by putting our hearts through 
tests, refining tests, or you might say trials. The Lord does that for hearts. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 15, starting in verse 2, where he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, God, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, you gardeners know what we're talking about here. Pruning, right? We're going to cut away part of this to produce more growth. But to produce more growth, we have to do the cutting. We have to cut it away. Being pruned, brothers and sisters, is not comfortable. It's not pleasant work. But it is necessary if you want to be fruitful in God's kingdom. Will we open ourselves up to it? Will we open ourselves up and submit to God's gracious wounds? If you want to walk with God, you must let his spirit in to do the uncomfortable work of making you more holy. It's like hearing that you have cancer, but it's beatable. I've got cancer, but it's beatable. To get healthy, you're going to have to have a deep surgery, and you're going to have to go through chemotherapy, right? It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, but you can come out the other side with life. The work of healing you, the work of purifying you and making you holy like God is holy is going to be uncomfortable at times, but it's for your good. And so will you give yourself to him so he can do the work? It's a gracious but necessary wound. I want to ask you this morning, I want to challenge you this morning to pray a dangerous prayer. A dangerous prayer. A dangerous prayer is one that we pray and, and we open ourselves up to God in a way that might, might hurt us, might make us uncomfortable, might rip away something that we, we cherish. Right? It's a dangerous prayer. The prayer is this. Father, if I have put my trust, my hope, or my identity in something that is not Jesus... Do whatever it takes to rip my heart away from it. Can you pray that prayer this morning from your heart? I think if any of us are honest, it would make us nervous to do it, right? Because we know what that could mean. But that's the faith that God rewards. That kind of faith is what God rewards. The faith that says, do your work, and then you bite down hard on that stick, and you get ready to feel the pain. Because you know on the other end of it, there's life. There's life on the other end of God's gracious wounds. It's the only way to life. Letting him in. Letting Jesus come in and clean house. Right? You ever seen that show, Hoarders? You ever seen that show? Some people watch this and it's like pleasurable to them somehow. I don't know. But there's, there's people who have, have just made an absolute mess of their lives. And it's, it's really sad, actually. And they've gotten to the breaking point to where they're going to let someone in and, and clean house, right? But you can tell it's more than just someone's coming in to clean their place up. It's an emotional wrenching out of them something that has gotten in there that's not healthy, right? It's hard for them. They're, they're letting someone come in and clean house, and it's not comfortable. They're not reacting to it well at first. But it's necessary, for their health. It's necessary that God comes in, that Jesus comes in, that the Spirit comes in and cleans 
house. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And on the other end of it, there's life. This is perhaps hardest when we are making the decision to follow Christ, that first step of faith. It's perhaps hardest when you've never let him in at all. We've got to continue to let him in, all of us do, but when you've never let him in at all, it's perhaps hardest. And I want to give you an encouragement if you have never done this. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. When Jesus comes in, he starts ripping your idols away. And it doesn't feel good at first, but it's the only way to life. Jesus says, what good would it be if a man gained the whole world and yet forfeited his soul? What good would it be for you if you held on to those sins that you cherish for 90 years, if you're lucky, if you live that long? What good would it be if you hold on to all the pleasures that you cherish right now and yet you spend eternity in hell? Would it not be infinitely better to give it up to Jesus right now, to let him come in and do the work so that at the other end of it, on the other side, you can have the life that is truly life. And I'm not just talking about life in heaven. I'm talking about life here and now, life to the full, with a clear conscience, with an open heart for the Lord. Don't you want that? It's open to any who would come. It's open to any who would forsake their sin. Taking that first step of faith means repenting of your sin. Jesus preached while he was on this earth, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. What's that mean? It means turning away from your sin. Allowing God to come in and kill it. That's what repenting means. Are you ready to take that step? Or if you've already taken that initial step, Do we need to do it again? Do we need to let him in deeper than he's ever gone before? Do we need to give everything up to him? Nothing held back. No, No more reservations. It's all his. Do what you want with me. I'm ready. Whatever it means. Let's end right there and let's spend some time in prayer. Each week here, at Columbia Christian, after God's word to us, we want to spend time speaking words to him. How do you need to respond to God's word that he's given to you on your heart specifically this morning? So we want to give a few minutes right now for prayer for you to do just that, to respond to the Lord. And then after we respond privately in prayer, we'll come back. We'll have a time of invitation to where people can respond publicly to the word if they need to do so. So let's all pray together.